meeting here today in, I guess, what I'd have to call the basement church of God. <laughs> We've been talking about humility a great deal and the elements of uh, unity, so perhaps we'll start here at the bottom. God says that's where we should put ourselves anyway and esteem others better than ourselves, so uh, I don't know of anyone lower than the basement church of God. Now, for several sermons, I have been concentrating on unity and the elements that are required for unity among God's people. And we talked about the quelling and rooting out of pride in our lives and coming to have true humility and esteeming others better than ourselves, of being willing to sacrifice in order to provide opportunity to agree with people, not that I say we should compromise, that doesn't enter into it at all with the true words of God, but we can compromise our own egos, we can compromise a lot of things in order to get along and not have to have our way about things. Now Richard gave a sermon also tied with unity last week, Jim Fletcher did not long ago, and John has been mentioning a lot of principles that are involved as well through his series of sermons he's been giving. Now I want to change direction somewhat uh, today, so maybe we won't call this part of the Unity series, it's maybe the beginning of a new series, time will tell, but it is related, uh, very related in fact, as we'll find before I finish. I'm going to title this, The Minor Prophets and the End Time Church. For Diane's sake, she always wants to know what the title is for the page. So we'll see how far we get into this. <clears throat> but John has had a series recently on denying materialism. He's also established a need for being concerned about the end time, specifically the Y2K problem. Incidentally, I saw in USA Today and Thursday that uh, there's a con several congressmen working on the medical people, and the report there was that only 30% of the hospitals in this country have an active Y2K plan that they are initiating in the hospitals. 70% are not even really addressing it. They either are, are devising a plan to do it, or I think he said 20 or 30% of the article were doing nothing. This is the congressman speaking. So 30% actively doing something, some planning to do something, some not even considering it at all. And part of their idea on this was that a lot of these big hospitals who are actually doing something active about it are not just fixing the computers, but they have computer chips that are not 2,000 sensitive buried in a lot of their equipment. And his fear is that they're not going to throw that equipment away because some of the greater, bigger hospitals and chains of hospitals sell their outdated or used equipment to smaller hospitals. So he's afraid that they're going to give these Y2K non-compliant machines to the smaller hospitals. And the, the Congress is all in a flap about it. So just one more thing to think about. Um, Maybe it's going to be a big problem. Maybe it's not going to be as big. Depends on which expert you talk to. But still in all, it's getting a lot of press now, more and more as time goes on. Now in these sermons, 
I and we have emphasized the personal responsibility in terms of unity. And overcoming is the base from which cooperation between people so that unity might spring forth. When you read the Bible, it is very difficult to get away from personal responsibility for what you read. Now, the world, they're doing everything they can to remove personal responsibility. And you can have any kind of excuse for your conduct that uh, is even imaginable. And it's accepted by this world. But God does not do that. And we will see as we get into this that personal responsibility is not just buried in Paul's writing somewhere or in the Sermon on the Mount, but it is throughout the Bible. <laughs> Perhaps we understand that because you can read back in Deuteronomy uh, the Ten Commandments are written just to just a group and you can excuse yourself because you're on the edge of the group. There is a personal responsibility there and personal salvation is involved. The last time... <clears throat> I spoke. Please forgive me. I may hack a little bit more than usual through this. I am just recovering from a cold, and it's, it's basically gone, but it's sort of settled in my throat a little bit. But the last time I spoke, I touched a bit on Haggai and the work of the two witnesses in rebuilding the church. Uh, that spawned some questions in which people said, What did you mean exactly? Uh, where were you headed? Uh, Quite a few different questions came up about it, and I, I just rushed over it in passing to some degree. Uh, so there are some unanswered questions out there. And I thought about, well, should I go into that, <coughs> breaking into perhaps Haggai and Zechariah? Or do we need to lay some more background before we get to addressing that more specifically? And I came up with the idea that we probably should go through the minor prophets. Because even though each of the minor prophets is a message in itself that God inspired Hosea, Joel, Amos, or whoever to give, there is a story flow, a very definite thread you can pick up from Hosea through Malachi. And it's like chapters of a book, uh, one after the other. I've uh, looked at that a little bit recently, and it's, it's very definite in there. Hosea, Joel, and Amos basically deal with what the problem is, what God is going to do about it, uh, quite a bit about attitude, and then it's, each of them flashes forward to give the end result of what will happen when God is done. But even with that, there is a story unfolding here. Therefore, I want to go back to the very beginning and start with Hosea. But we'll have a few other comments first before we get to that. Bringing up the two witnesses from the end time always brings up certain questions of how do we get from here to there. Now we had a fairly simple approach to the end time and a place of safety in worldwide years and years ago. It was pretty simple. We had one leader, Herbert Armstrong, and an angel would come down and sit on his shoulder and he would tell him it's time to go and we're going to see trust. And then the phone networks would activate and people would call people all over the country and we would head to the nearest airport post-haste without packing our bags and would jump on a 747, I guess there wasn't one when we started this thought, but a big 
plane anyway. And uh, we would all head across the ocean and would land on the sand, I guess, and all trek into Petra. Now, there was more to it than that, that perhaps uh, the plane would land in Jerusalem and would be there for 30 or 45 or 75 days, however different ones looked at it, and then walk to Petra and get there, hopefully starting on Sunday and be there by Sabbath so that you didn't uh, walk on the, on the Sabbath. Then we would check into the Red Rock Hotel, hard beds and all. We wouldn't grumble or complain or drive. We would be so happy to be there. And uh, then suddenly in the sky would appear a golden arch, and we would have manna burgers rain down upon us. And we'd live there for three and a half years, stacking rocks and uh, being taught. I, I, I make a little facetious here. <coughs> but it was almost a rapture picture. This is going to be easy. All we have to do is sit here in worldwide and wait for a phone call. But that picture has changed pretty dramatically, hasn't it? In the, in the year since 1985, 86 through 90, and on, 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 on up until now. Is the, is the picture still valid today? And can we understand what has happened to us? What is coming next? And how it is going to occur? What about the angel on the shoulder? How did that happen today? That's what I mean. Things have changed. Is that angel going to talk to Rod or maybe Larry? Is he going to talk to David or Les? Is he going to talk to Fred or Ted? Is he going to talk to John or Jerry? Tom, Dick, or Harry? And how many in the greater church of God would actually believe that angel had appeared had he sat on the shoulder of any one of those people? Probably a very few in each case. So it's not nearly so simple as it used to be. Now I'm going to say a word and see what it conjures in your mind when I say this word. Check it. Some of you might have thought of this frozen thing in a plastic wrapper with a speech sticking up. Others might have thought Parmesan. And some of you from where I just moved from might have said, Pride. Maybe that's where I'm standing. I don't know. <laughs> some of you probably thought coward. Chicken. Probably more than Parmesan. I grew up on the farm in the ranch, and uh, I've seen the antics of chickens. They're very flighty birds. On the next farm over, my aunt and uncle uh, raised chickens and, for the eggs and sold them commercially. Well, they had their chickens in these cooks, which I despised by the thousands. But I remember as a kid, you were not allowed in those chicken houses. And if you were, you had to open the door very gently, walk in very unobtrusively, very deliberately, never make a sudden movement, never make a loud noise, otherwise panic would occur. Flapping and squawking and cackling and uh, killing one another. That's chicken. Now also, I've seen chickens run to the barn at the sound of a thunderclap. I've seen them run from dogs and people. They're, they're flighty birds by nature. And perhaps that's where we got the colloquialism about the chicken. 
It reminds me a bit of the church today. It doesn't take much to startle, to frighten, to panic, or sending us running from one group to another, or from one minister to another, or to each other, or somewhere. We're very, very touchy today, and perhaps with good reason. That's not a criticism, that's just the way we are. I'm not calling a chicken necessarily, but uh, but the reminder is there a little bit that, that we are very touchy. Now you might have had other things that came to your mind when I mentioned chicken, but I wonder how many of you thought of Jesus Christ. Can I see the hands? There's no one here. I don't know about you on the telephone. You probably did not. But let's go to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Let's go down to verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets and stole them which are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chicken under her wings, and you would not. So Christ uses himself here in this analogy as a mother hen. So he calls himself, in that sense, the chicken by analogy. Now what can we learn from this? As I said, I grew up with real chickens. And uh, when a hen would start setting, she became very grouchy. She became very protective and possessive of those eggs under her. And in some cases, if conditions were not just right, or she left the nest too much, or whatever, those eggs, rather than hatching, would rot. Or sometimes the farmer, not wanting that particular hen to be setting at that particular time and slowing down the egg production, would remove the eggs. But then the chicken would sit there on nothing and still be just as grouchy. And if you try to reach under her to feel her eggs, she would peck you. Now, she wasn't chicken in the tower sense at all. When I've seen mother hens attack dogs, people, horses, cows, anything that threatened her chicks. But before we move on to that, consider this one who has nothing there but rotten eggs. And I want to use Satan as part of the analogy on that. He's pretty crabby toward the world, especially toward the church. He has his own plan for how he expects to rule this world. But his eggs are rotten, and they're not going to produce chicks. Sometimes, with a hen like that, there's only one solution. Well, there's two solutions you can pour a head off. But that isn't the specific analogy. Sometimes you have to take that hen, because she will not get out of that set mode. She'll sit there and starve to death, essentially. So you get a tow sack, and you shove her down in it, and you hang her on a nail in the barn. You shut the door and leave her in the dark for a few days. But she's not eating anyway. And maybe she'll get out of that mode, sitting in the dark, doing nothing. That's exactly what God is going to do with Satan. Put him in a sack, and set him in the dark. Now, he may not be like a setting in, and he may never get over it. That's a different matter. But I wanted to contrast Jesus Christ. He portrays himself here as already having chicks. 
He speaks of those things which are not as if they already were. His chicks have hatched. And where are his chicks? Ancient Israel with his chicks. And they denied him. They would make a covenant with him and then despise him. And when Jesus Christ would send a prophet to them to tell them what could be, such as Moses laying out the blessings and cursings, what could be if they would do thus and such, they would stone his words. They would not listen. And in every case so far, they have wound up with cursing rather than blessing. That's a scary thought, because we sit here as God's children, as Christ's chicks, and he gives this warning to the Jews of his day. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that stole the prophets. Very serious. And if you've been following our sermons for some time, you will have heard quite a little disgust about Jerusalem being the mother of us all, spiritual Jerusalem being the church. I spent quite a little time on that in the series on how exclusive is the church. If you haven't read heard that, you might get those things because I think it was laid out pretty clearly that we are the Jerusalem of God's concern at the moment. Physical Israel will be of great concern to him uh, very shortly now. But we come first because we're the spiritual organism. So we might put in here, O church of God, O church of God that kills the prophets and stole them which are sent to you. Now Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, Lamentations, were sent to you and me. John used that as a Bible study pretty much around the country, showing that it is God who is behind the scattering. He didn't cause it. We did. I did and you did. But he is the one behind it because that is the only way we're going to learn that we're chastened because. <laughs> so we've laid that background, and I don't want to take time to go back through all of that before getting into this. It is available to you if you wish it. Are we in danger of doing the same thing? And that's what I'm implying when I say, O Church of God, do the kill the prophets. God gave us this Bible. I don't know how much he needs. Well, the two witnesses, of course, he called the prophets. That's all down the line. I don't know how much he really needs prophets as such in the genre of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and, and these minor prophets, because this was laid out long ago for us. All we need to do now is read it and understand it. But there's a certain bias against talking about prophecy, and that is foretold as well. A prophet about prophecy, or prophecy about prophecy, to put it that way, in Isaiah and in Joel and various other places, Amos, where he says that people will not want to listen to prophecy. Now, I have used, I've done quite a bit of it, and once in a while somebody says, why don't you get off that? Hey, the whole Bible is prophecy. The resurrection is speculation, isn't it? You haven't seen the resurrection yet. Now, I believe that it's going to happen, but I don't know all the ins and outs about it. So anything I say about the resurrection, to one degree or another, I'm speculating. But Christ 
himself. Okay, this is a landmark throughout the ages here in Matthew 23 and verse 37. This is something he talked about the Old Testament, talked to them about the Old Testament church. He talked to them about themselves, and he put it down here for us to consider as well. Now let's emphasize a little more in the last part of this. How often would I have gathered your children together? How often in the last, let's say, 12 years would Jesus Christ have wanted to gather his chickens together, his chicks? But we would not. We all slumbered and slept. We all denied now, how does the mother hen react when her little bitties hatch out of their eggs? She parades around the barnyard with 10 or 15 little chicks. And she clucks a lot. Cluck, 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 cluck. And those babies are supposed to come to that cluck. Another way she has of drawing them is she scratches in the manure lot. And in that manure, she finds weed seeds and undigested wheat, oats, and various other seeds. And as she uncovers them, the children eat the good food. They look for the good seed. So she scratches, they jump right in there. And they stay close to Mama because she has those big feet, and she can scratch the good out. They can't. They're just little bitties, little fluff balls. So between the clucking and the scratching, the chicks stay close to Mama. Now, as those chicks get a little bit older, three, four, five days a week, whatever, they discover there are other things in the world besides the clucking of mommy. There are flies in the barnyard, and there are bugs. And if I run right over here, I might catch a fly. Boom! Good. They get their minds away from mama just a little bit. What happens? I've seen chicks drowned in the watering trough. I've seen chicks caught by the dog and the cat. I've seen snakes come in and catch them. I've seen them get isolated on the other side of the haystack, not be able to hear mama clucking and die of starvation. I've seen them stay out in the rain, not having enough sense to come in out of the rain, get pneumonia and die. There are an awful lot of things that happen to a chick when they get away from mama. And Jesus Christ says, I am like a mother hen to you. I've clucked and I've clucked and I've scratched and I've tried to show you my way, but you all slumbered and slept. You all went to sleep. I'm mixing the metaphors, the analogies here a little bit, but that's okay. They're mixed in the Bible. Or you've gone off to the watering trough and are drowning. We could continue that analogy. You see that. But the bottom line here is he keeps wanting to do that. Now, he's very possessive of us. I mean, the mother hen, she raises the, all the feathers on her back and she spreads her wings out. And uh, you don't dare get near her chicks or you're in danger. I don't care what. Her cowardice, that part of chicken is gone. Very possessive. And yet, at the same time, she gets upset with her chicks that go off out there and cluck flower and chases after them. And is very careful to try to gather them. And Christ has been that way with us. I know, as well as I'm standing here, that he is on his throne today. And 
want so much to see us in peace and in love and in harmony with one another and growing together toward his kingdom and all of us around his feet and under his protective wing. I know he's on the edge of his throne with that emotion because he says so right here. How often would I have gathered you together and brought you right together with me? But what was the problem? You would not. Now let's go on. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Is this where the church is heading today? Desolation? Destruction? Disunity and disharmony? It's not just happening. I believe that it is intensified. And that it will get much worse before it gets better. Because he says so. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. He's speaking to those Jews, to physical Israel. But in the chapters here, just before this, as I covered again in how exclusive is the church, Christ was removing the power from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, from the Jews. And he was giving it to the disciples, to his apostles. He transferred the power, and the apple of his eye became the New Testament church. He is also going to save Israel later, as Romans 9 through 11 clearly shows. But he is working primarily with the church today. For I say to you, verse 39, you shall not see me henceforth till you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. The Jews did not accept him. They not only stoned the prophets he had sent before, but they stoned him as well. Not literally, but crucified, that's even worse. And those same, the physical nation of Judah and Israel has not accepted the message in this end time, for the most part. You know, how many are there? Hundreds of millions scattered around the world of Israelites. And only at maximum 150,000 responded. And a lot of them were tares. But he said, Israel will not see him until they come to the point that they accept his prophets, those he sent. They've not done it yet. Now notice the continuation of the context, even though there is a chapter break. Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and the disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Jesus said to them, You see all of this before you? Verily I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And the analogy is forward to the spiritual temple today. And we are seeing it tossed down, stone by stone by stone. Frustrating, isn't it? Debilitating. <laughs> Confusing. To see all these groups, each pointing fingers at each other, saying we're better than you are. See, you cannot have unity under those conditions. Anytime we point at someone else and say, I'm better than you, I'm more mature than you, you cannot have unity and harmony. It's impossible. And therefore, <clears throat> the division continues. We just will not. And you know what? This is going to continue until we will.
And we will. Won't we? Now let's go to Matthew 12. Let's see how much Christ values the church today. Matthew 12. Verse 46. While Christ yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood without, desiring to speak with him. Now this may have been some kind of family crisis, certainly important, because Mary had seen Christ's single-mindedness toward his father's word and work all his life. I mean, look at age 12, down there conferring with the, with the uh, rabbis and teaching them. And she had seen him through all his life have a singleness of mind toward God the Father. And she knew that when he was talking to people, he was not to be interrupted. I'm sure that had been made clear. So this must have been some kind of a, an urgent need that his mother and his brothers and sisters had. They all came to where he was teaching and said words, I need to speak to my son Jesus. I'm drawing a picture here a little bit. Maybe that isn't exactly the way it happened. But understanding the dynamics of this, it had to have been pretty important. Then one said to him, Behold, your mother and your brother stand without, desiring to speak with you, interrupted him. Said, Your mom's out here, Jesus. You need to see your mom. What did he say? He answered and said to him, that told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. Does he consider the church important? I don't know whether Mary was there on the day of Pentecost, whether she was baptized or not. But he put the church ahead of his physical family. His spiritual brethren and mother are more important than the physical. Now, as human beings, there's probably nothing really more important to us than our families, our physical families. Unless maybe we're really perverted and money or some other God takes precedence over even our own families. But Jesus put the emphasis here and made a point of letting people know that the New Testament church, which he was building through this beginning with his disciples, was more important than even his own mother. I'm sure his own mother will be in the kingdom of God someday. But if he didn't put the church first, how can mom and the brother see there? See? It sounds kind of cold the way I put it at first. But his overall purpose will work out in the end. Now let's go to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. <clears throat> Here is the disciples' question. Who would be in the kingdom of God? And he talks here about humility. Uh, verse 14, Jesus said, Suffer the little children and forbid them not to come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, all the pride, the ego, the me first, we're the best group, all of this stuff that we hear today, Christ that has to be put away and become as little children. Be 
before they learn guile, before they learn competition and possessiveness and, and one-uppings, and I'm better than you. When they look to their parents as the greatest authority and, and semi-God, as they look up at dad and mom. That kind of attitude. Now this young man wanted to be in the kingdom of God and thought he had kept the commandments. But he said, no, go and sell that which you have. And it was so simple to prove who his God was. It was his money. We all know that story. <laughs> and Christ then told the disciples, it's going to be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. I think we can expand that to say not just the man who has a lot of money, but there are a lot of people who do not have much money who want money. And, that, and wanting money is as much a God and a motivation to them as having money. Maybe perhaps sometimes more. So wishing to be rich or being rich is somewhat the same problem. So they said, then who can be saved? Carnally thinking. I said, well, with men, this is impossible, verse 26, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed you. We've given up our homes. We've given up our families. We've given up our professions, fishing and tax collecting or whatever. We've given it all up and come to follow you. Peter's fishing here a little bit again. <laughs> He'd given up the profession, but he was fishing. And Jesus said to them, verse 28, Truly I say to you that you which have followed me in the regeneration, the restoring of all things, in the kingdom of God, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, you also shall sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. They had forsaken all and were willing to follow. Now they had not forsaken all as much as they thought they had. They weren't willing to give their own lives also yet, as we saw when they turned chicken a little later uh, when Christ was about to die. But they got over that even. Now you and I, in our traditional view of what would happen when that angel came to Herbert Armstrong, have made up our minds we're ready to walk out on job, family, dog, home, everything, and jump on that airplane. Now that's fairly simple. And though it might require a certain amount of bravery and a certain amount of faith, it's a little too simple, isn't it? Are we willing to sacrifice everything now? Will it be that simple? Do we have to make sacrifices today, tomorrow, and now on until this happens? And maybe we will be called upon to make great sacrifices. Even some of the righteous, even some of the very alive, are going to be martyred. If we're faithful in little, we'll be faithful in much. Now notice in verse 29 what he tells us. Everyone that has forsaken houses, given up their homes. These are the conditions Jesus Christ lays down before his disciples in the New Testament church, henceforward and forever, including today. Everyone that has forsaken houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mothers, or wife, or children, or land, property, assets, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit in everlasting life. 
That lays some pretty heavy conditions on us, doesn't it? We are to be willing to give up anything we have, including wife and children, houses, The cost is high. Why do people stole the prophets? They always did. Why? Well, you read back there, they tell us what we do not wish to hear. That's the primary reason. When you hear what you don't want to hear, then when you pick up the stones and start throwing rocks. Why? What is it we don't want to hear? Well, what's the message of the prophet? Basically, you agreed to something here, folks, and you aren't doing it. Goes all the way back to Moses. Well, goes back to Adam and Eve. You agreed to tend this garden. And here a day later, presumably... You're not living up to your part of the deal. And that's been man's history ever since. There in Mount Sinai, here are the blessings, here are the cursings, here are the commandments. Oh yeah, we'll do that, you bet. Not a chance. Early New Testament church made the same covenant. Higher promises, better covenant. But it wasn't long until an apostasy occurred. Yes, we will. No, we won't. Great falling away in the early New Testament church. Look at today. We were told, once you put your hand to the plow, you can't turn back. We were told to count the cost. We were told that we might have to give our very lives for this someday. And yet people are going back to Protestantism wholesale. Giving it up. We would not. And when told that we need to repent the way to wake up. It isn't comfortable. We don't want to hear that. I don't like to hear that. And it rings in my head a lot. Because it's hard. It takes energy, devotion, commitment to see this thing through. And that's why Christ says, lands, homes, children, everything. Even your own life also in another place. We are telling you in reading these prophecies to turn to God with your whole heart because he emphasizes that over and over in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on. And the message you are hearing from Church of the Great God is not the intricacies of Daniel and the timing of all that and which general is what and what this horn is. Now, somebody might get into that. I hope it's not me, because I get confused back there. It hasn't been opened clearly yet, as far as I know. But what we try to emphasize out of these prophecies is repentance, an attitude of seeking God with all our hearts. That's the purpose. That we're saying, forget your interests. Remember John's series just recently about materialism. Getting our minds off the things of this world and the goodies in Babylon. Devoting ourselves entirely to God. Those are messages that are hard. They're not mean. They're not nasty. They just require a lot of effort. And some of us don't like to hear that. So we pick up rocks and throw them in the 
God inspired to purify seven times and said, this is what we need to do. My interest in prophecy is not all the little intricacies of how this and that might work out. But the overall purpose of what God is doing to the church, why he's doing it, how I need to respond, so that I might come again under the blessings of God. Because we are under cursing today as a church. The first show that. Can we see in the Bible what has happened? Why it has happened? And what will come next? And how? Maybe even barely closely to when? I'm not into setting dates. Don't get me wrong. Christ said when you see the leaves on the trees, you know spring is near. And when we see certain things, we know it's near. Well, I won't go any closer than say near. Now, we have devoted in this particular organization considerable time to explaining what has occurred and what in Lamentations and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on and so forth. And I think we've pretty well established that there are two similar but separate bodies of people that Christ is dealing with. I mentioned that a little bit earlier, in that there is the physical nation of Israel that will be dealt with, but that Christ is dealing with the church first. So when we read the prophecies, and this we need to keep in mind, when we read the prophecies, we're looking at concurrent events with two timelines. What is happening in the church is just about to befall or befall the physical nations of Israel. We have seen people going to sleep. We saw our king or counselor die. And we have seen the church begin to come apart through a spiritual famine and pestilence. We have seen people dying spiritually. Thousands are left hand and ten thousand are right. We see people going into the captivity of Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, right and left, before our very eyes, some of our friends and relatives. I just want to visit a lady. Well, I, maybe I better not say that. Somewhere along the line, she might hear this day. But I just talked to a person who is still in Worldwide, someone I've known for many years. I said, I will stay true to God through this all. And yet, when I saw her recently, I was told, I will never go back to legalism again. I am so happy with grace now. I have no responsibility. I don't have to overcome. I don't have to account for myself. I'm under grace. Never any more legalism. So we talked about weather. <laughs> you know, but there's no, there's no talking to that mind. And I'm not putting the person down in the event. I guess I went ahead and said what I wasn't going to do. But I don't mean to put the person down. It's just that... I see things a lot differently than that person sees things. And I still feel a great responsibility before God to keep the commandments, even though I know I'm not saved by the law, because I've broken the law, and I certainly don't deserve anything but death. But we won't go into that. God has spent a great deal of time on the legal side of this. <laughs> we should understand it by now. 
us. And we see that. That's about to happen to this country. Now, Ezekiel was famine and pestilence first. We're going to run out of food physically. And that will be followed by disease. That will weaken us to the point then that we can be taken over militarily, taken into captivity. This is coming. How far away is it? I don't know. But I think it's close. But you see, it started happening in the church first. We read about an abomination of desolation in 1 Thessalonians 2, and that appears to be someone on the world scene, yes, and the two witnesses go nose to nose against the beast and the false prophets. And miracles are happening on both sides just like they did in Egypt. All of that is going to transpire. <coughs> but on a smaller stage in Pasadena, we saw the swine, the flesh of false doctrine being sacrificed on the altar, didn't we? And we had to flee for our very lives, spiritually speaking. And those swine are still on that altar. And we cannot go back to that. So, a flight took place spiritually. God saw us through it, didn't he? Those of us who are here and those of us who are still sticking to the truth in other groups and individually, wherever they might be, we have survived so far. Thank God. Because he brought us through it. At the same time, there are sick and dying spiritually and dead spiritually. They've just given it up, gone right back into the world with the vomit they came out of. But what has occurred in the church is just now about to happen physically to the nation. Because you see, God has to get our attitude straightened out if we're going to be a part of straightening out the rest of this world. And this life, we have to be up to speed. We have to be right up to what He is doing. And by pressure, He's getting us there. By extreme pressure. And I think the pressure probably is going to simply get stronger. Until we truly, from the heart, turn to our God. Now let's go to the minor prophets. Keeping in mind the two things that are occurring here. Now traditionally, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, I would read the minor prophets and think, well, this has to do with the nations of Israel. And it was generally believed that uh, the Jews would build a temple in Jerusalem and they would have physical sacrifices there. And that that was the main message of these books. Now the Jews may indeed build a temple. They may indeed do animal sacrifices there. I don't know. I don't know whether that is totally necessary or not. But I have come to see that these minor prophets, along with the major, are talking to you and me. They're talking first to the church. Secondly, to the nations of Israel. Where did Paul, where did Peter, where did Jesus draw their analogies? What was their source material for speaking to the New Testament church? The Old Testament prophecies. They quoted them constantly. Either directly or referred to them or used principles from Deuteronomy, from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, as they call it in the, in the old King James, Hosea, and Joel. That's where they got their source material to teach the New Testament church. And God has preserved the Old Testament and now the New Testament view of the Old Testament. Both for us to consider. And if these things apply, 
said, they certainly apply now. In faith, I mean, that's colloquialism someone didn't understand when I used it a while back in another country. But, on a larger scale. Because Peter thought that that little episode on the day of Pentecost was the final fulfillment of Joel. But it wasn't. Coming again. And it's coming in a greater, stronger, more dramatic fashion than it did even then. I think that's pretty clear. So, I wanted to lay that background before going into this message that Christ is laying out for us in the Minor Prophets to be sure that we don't stone or ignore these prophets because they are there for us today, not just for physical Israel. Everything in here. Now, it's a little, the trickiest part of understanding this is that sometimes the emphasis is a little more on physical Israel. Sometimes the emphasis is a little more on spiritual Israel. So it gets a little tricky understanding which God is talking to at the moment. But in most cases, I believe he is talking to both. The instruction is dual. It's just that one is more important at the moment, the other will become more important once the millennium gets here and physical Israel is dealt with. Well, it'll get dealt with on, a, on an angry note first in tribulation. But we're having our spiritual tribulation now. We can avoid the physical tribulation which is about to worsen if we wake up now. If not, we're going to go right on into it with the rest of Israel. Now, as I said, <clears throat> beginning with Hosea, each of these books is a message or a microcosm in itself, but they also read like a mystery novel. How does a mystery novel begin? Explaining the problem. So-and-so got killed yesterday. And then, you know, they all sort of take off with that basis. And then you go through who did it, why, what's going to occur next, is this person going to kill again? <laughs> and so on and so forth until finally now at the end of the book you get to the solution you figure out the who done it and these ten prophecies these ten little books I believe have the same kind of flotism in them we will find instruction we will read things that probably make us fear to our very Jews we will read about sacrifice. We will read about responsibility. We will see correction. We'll see a wide range of emotions in these ten little books. But in each, we will find great hope and direction for our lives as well. So let's go now. How much time do I have left? I have time now to get into Hosea a little bit. Back to Hosea. Well, boy, Daniel would come right before it because I don't understand all those little things in there. As I said, and we'll go direct to Hosea. And maybe there's some things here I don't yet understand either, but let's make a, a valiant attempt to understanding some of the things that God has for us here. Now, Hosea, first of all, is addressed in great part to Ephraim. So I always thought this little book just for great friends, basically. It had anything to do with me. Now back up here just a minute. I think we'll find different. Let's go back to Jeremiah 31 first of all. Jeremiah 31. Now who was the first born of Jacob's children? 
Well, this is a curious scripture back here. Because, in verse 9, they shall come with weeping and with supplications while I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, did God get confused here? Did he forget the birth order? Not in your life. Reuben was essentially unstable, had some difficulties. So God simply changed it. He's capable of that. So I'm changing the order here of inheritance. I'm changing the order of, order of prominence. Now, he didn't go back and change the physical birth, but God did change what would occur. Now, the Ephraim is the firstborn, and the Nath is the brother, and they are lumped together, for that matter. When you speak of Ephraim, essentially you're including Manasseh, and Manasseh is fairly, uh, very rarely mentioned, actually, in connection with Ephraim. But it's sort of like Judah, including Benjamin and Levi, see. When you mention Ephraim, you're lumping Manasseh with it. And we have essentially understood that Ephraim was Great Britain and the Commonwealth of the United States was Manasseh. Now, whether God changed the birth order when he changed this or not, I don't know. It doesn't really matter because we, we lump them together and the church basically is in the United States and Britain and the Commonwealth. They're what's left of the Commonwealth. Now, let's make one more step here. Hebrews 12, verse 23. <clears throat> Hebrews 12, verse 23. To the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn. So God calls the church the firstborn. Therefore, if he made Ephraim the firstborn, is there not a connection between Ephraim and the church? So when he praises, compliments, or chastens Ephraim, should we not perhaps listen? Because God set the church above the rest of physical Israel. The appointed the church is the firstborn of many brethren. So we have something very akin to Ephraim and Manasseh here. And God did build the church primarily in the United States and Britain. So anything he says to those is spiritually applied, speaking to you and me. So let's go into Hosea with that in mind. This isn't just talking to the folks in Liverpool or London, but this is talking to you and me. <clears throat> and God does not waste much time here telling us what is on his mind. He really gets into it. He told Hosea, now, picture yourself in Hosea's shoes now. God comes to you. Or an angel comes to you and sits on your shoulder and he doesn't tell you about Petra. He comes and sits on your shoulder and says, Hosea, I want you to go marry a whore. This is not necessarily good news. <laughs> but bang! I mean, that's just the way the thing starts. Go, take to you a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms. For the land has committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. Have we seen that in the church? Let's get this identity going right now on this line. Not just talking to Liverpool. This is talking to us. To the church of God. Has the church today committed whoredoms? Boy, you bet it has. Gone the way of Baal, gone the way of Egypt, gone the way of Babylon. Right back into the world. And we were 
tainted by it to one degree or another. Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, which conceived and bore him a son. And then he named these kids specifically as God told him to because he was sending a message. In verse 4, he called his first son Jezreel because I will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. I'm not going to go into all the names here and exactly what they all mean because this could get to be a long series. But uh, the meaning is there. First crack out of the box, I'm going to destroy the church. Bang. Secondarily, I'll destroy this nation. See how it works. If you don't believe it, look at the church. This is an end time prophecy. It shall come to pass at that day, verse 5, that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bare a daughter. God said to him, Call her name Oruami, meaning not having obtained mercy. For I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, the church, but I will utterly take them away. And we're a living example of what God is doing. He had mercy on us under Herbert Armstrong. Even though we had lapsed into Laodiceanism and blah, blah, as long as I'm sitting here, I'm okay, and we talked about the weather and our jobs at church, I thought we were secure. But God said, I want your heart. I don't want your behind in a chair. I want your heart. And he didn't have our heart. Nor did he have our attention. Our attention was on the material. Our attention was on a lot of different things. God doesn't like that. He is to be the center of attention. He said, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, verse 7, and will save them by the Lord their God. Now, a little later on, you'll find out he's not happy with Judah either. Chapter 5, verses 5 and 10. Judah also falls, not just Ephraim. The world wipes out. But that's not all. Now other organizations are coming apart and falling. So you see, he divides the church up. He'll talk about Israel as a whole. He'll talk about Jerusalem representing them all. He'll talk about Samaria, the capital of the northern tribes. He'll talk about Judah. He'll talk about different aspects of Israel. And we can interpret that, I think, fairly safely to say different elements of the church. Now, I'm not going to stand here and try to identify which part of the church is Judah and which part is Ephraim and which part is, you know, uh, we don't need to draw that fine a line and I couldn't do it anyway. Besides that, then we would be comparing ourselves among ourselves and not be wise. So let's just take the whole message on ourselves, you see. Now, when she had weaned him, she conceived and bare another son. Verse 9, Then said God, Call his name Moami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Didn't Mr. Armstrong say at times, But the not our course anymore! We've departed! This is not our church! You know what? God says the same thing. I don't recognize you anymore. You don't act like me anymore. You've departed in spirit and attitude and in doctrine. Now this is a temporary measure. We don't need to all get discouraged and go home. 
to understand that God was not happy with us. He, he came to the point where he said, these aren't my people. I've got to transform them. I can't tell these people from the world. Or at least not much. I need to shake them up. I need to wake them up. They've all gone astray. And he says it in verse 10, the number of the children of Israel shall be in the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And you will again be called, the end of the verse, you are the sons of the living God. That's New Testament language. Sons of the living God. Sons and co-heirs with Christ. That's the language of Hebrews and Paul. So this applies to the church as well as to physical Israel. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be, be gathered together. Here's a hint of unity to come. Don't miss this. Because God is going to unify. They will be gathered together and appoint themselves one head. And they shall come up out of the land. For great shall be the day of Israel. Now there are several scriptures which we'll get to which indicate that we don't have a leader now. Overall. We have some leadership but it's not an overall leadership. But there will come a time even in the church when we will be gathered together and we'll all look to one head. Now that doesn't mean we're going to have a vote and choose who will lead us. God is going to provide that leader. Moses and Elijah, Joshua and Zerubbabel, David, there are a lot of types that are going to come together in the end time leadership that God will give. Now that's another aside. We'll get to that story a little later on in this series. But God here hints that He is going to put us together and there will again be one head. Now I find that very exciting. How many of us will be left? <laughs> it's another question entirely. How many will be truthful or faithful and true? How many will be eliminated? That's the scary part, because it could be you, it could be me. Now let's, let's see if we can get a little further here. Say you to your brothers, Ami, and to your sister, Uwama, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. We're not fit to be called the wife of Christ, he says. How can a sleeping woman be fit to be Christ? Remember the song of songs? Where she got in bed and said, hey, I've got my nightie on, and I've got my covers up to my chin, and I don't want to get my feet cold. And he went away. Then she jumps up and goes out and gets in trouble trying to find him. Scary. Plead with your mother. Plead! For she is not my wife. Neither am I her husband. Let him her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. Famine of the word? Here it is. Our mother is dying. I will not have mercy upon her children. The churches that come out of her, I'm not going to have mercy on them either. Let's read it in Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32. Well, I'm at 34, and I wonder if it looked right. 
innocence and princes shall rule in judgment, and a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. And the eyes will be dim, and the ears will hear. So on. But it talks in verse 5, The vile person shall be no more called liberal, or the churl said to be bountiful, for the vile person will speak villainy, and his heart will work iniquity to practice hypocrisy, and to utter error against the Lord, to make empty the soul of the hungry, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. But there will be people who would come along, who would take the spiritual food and drink away from us. The instruments of the churl are evil. He devises wicked devices to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaks right. Some of us were still speaking right. But those that sacrificed those swine on that altar were speaking wrong. And they were instruments of evil, evil to destroy the poor with lying words. But the liberal devises liberal things, and by liberal things shall he stand. Rise up, you women that are at ease, gone to sleep at the switch. All ten virgins. Hear my voice, you careless daughters. Give ear to my speech. Did we get careless? You bet we did. Many days and years shall you be troubled. My King James Martin says days above a year. I don't know exactly what this means in terms of timing, and we won't get into all that. But perhaps at some time during here, this will intensify, and we will be truly troubled, not just scattered, for above a year before this turns around. I don't know when God's going to start counting this, if this is the correct translation. So I'm not going to try to say here, you know, start, start dates. That isn't my purpose. You careless women, for the vintage shall fail, the gathering shall not come. Didn't we just read that God was going to gather us together in unity there and give us one head in Hosea? But for a period of time here, it will not come. In the meantime, and I think that's where we are right now, the gathering, the deliverance has not come. We're still under the circumstances that we've been getting into for the last several years. Tremble! You women that are at ease, be troubled, you careless ones. Strip you and make you bare, which we just read in Hosea. And gird sackcloth upon your loins, they shall lament for the pits, for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vines. And we do, don't we? We go about, as Amos says, here and there, east and west, seeking truth, seeking food. And most of the time not finding it. Upon the land of my people, verse 13, shall come up thorns and briars, yea, upon all the houses of joy, and the joy of cities. Because the palaces shall be forsaken, people are leaving the church in droves, the multitude of the city shall be left, the forts and towers shall be for dens forever, a joy of wild asses, a pasture of flocks. Forever means here again until the conditions change. But this is the way it's going to be until something changes. Namely us. Verse 15. Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be counted for a forest. And then he turns to talks, verse 17. Well, verse 16. Then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. 
So the spiritual wilderness we find ourselves in is going to be turned around and God is going to give us abundant blessing again once we get ourselves where he wants us. Amen. And the work of righteousness shall be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. Beautiful promises there. But meantime, the church is being stripped bare. And boy, did this happen. Go back to Hosea 2, verse 1. Lest I strip her naked. And here we find ourselves stripped spiritually naked. That sort of reminds you of Revelation 3 and the Laodicean. You don't know you're naked and blind. So many, even those who have come out and who are still basically doctrinally true, so many think that they're okay. I'm a Philadelphian. I'm okay. And God says that very attitude indicates that you're laying a sin. A true <laughs> one with the right attitude would realize he's naked and blind. Do we feel righteous? Boy, I don't. I have to fight this carnal mind every day, every second, every moment of my life. Now maybe you're in spiritually better shape than I am, but I'll tell you what, for me it's a fight. Control my thoughts? I'm sure glad you people here in St. Louis don't know me very well. We get along fine so far. <laughs> I've been here for an hour or two. <laughs> but if you get to know me, you may understand why I say that. Because the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. A wretched man that I am. And Paul feel like, hey, I'm okay. I'm okay, you okay, or I'm okay and you're a dink. It's not a very good attitude to have. Lest I strip you naked and set you in the, as in the day that you were born and make you as a wilderness and set you like a dry land and slay you with thirst. Now I realize I'm covering some of the same things that we've covered before. But God didn't just write this all in one book. He didn't put it just in Isaiah and stop there. He gave us a whole pile of these books. Why? Because we're not getting it. We need all of them. And it's time to stop. And I'm right in the middle of the thought, right in the middle of the chapter, but the clock on the wall says stop, so I'll stop, and we'll pick this up 